the thief comes not except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have an enjoy life, life in abundance until it overflows. Discover how to live the abundant life in Christ through the ministry of Pastor Oseyao Afwakwa. Pastor Afwakwa is the founder and general overseer of Embassy of Life Chapel, a thriving ministry headquartered in Kumasi with a network of churches in Kumasi and Accra, Ghana. God has commissioned him to train believers through the teaching of the good news of the kingdom to know God better, live life better, and impact the world better. Get set for an empowerment that will enable you to live a life of all-round victory, success, and limitless prosperity. God bless you as you listen. with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 10. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10. He said, and you he made alive. Somebody say, I'll be made alive. Say, I'm alive. Say, I'm alive. Alright, so where you get born again, you are made alive. The difference between the person who is born again and the one who is not born again is the fact that one is dead, one is alive. And when you are born again, you are made alive. Somebody say, I'm made alive. Say, I'm alive in Christ. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. You, he had quickened. You, he had made alive. Who? We're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he's going to be talking about something here. And he began by letting us see why he will say what he's about to say. That's why I want you to follow what I'm reading very closely. He said, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walk according to the cause of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the last of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby by nature children of wrath, just as others. So he's telling you all the things that were due you, your default state before this time. He says you were dead, you were a child of wrath, you conducted yourself like the children of disobedience, you walk according to the course of the world. And then he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So he said that was who you were. You were dead. You used to walk according to the details of your flesh. And then he says that you conducted yourself as a child of disobedience. But when the mercy of God stepped in, he began to change the equation. Praise the Lord. Are you not excited for the mercy of God? He says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Your amen is very weak. He says, you are saved by grace because you were dead. You didn't have anything to contribute to the matter. Then he says, and raised us up together and made us sit. This is authority. Praise the Lord. This is where we operate from. This is our headquarters. This is why the Bible can say that you are citizens of heaven. Because you are now seated in Christ in heavenly places, far above principalities and powers. If he had just delivered you, saved you, and left you to your fate, you will still be at the mercy of a devil. But the Bible says when he saved us, 
He raised us and made us to sit together in Christ in heavenly places far above principalities and powers. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. For, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been what? Saved through faith. Somebody say, I'm saved by grace. Say, I'm saved by grace. I'm sanctified by grace. I stand by grace. I serve by grace. Now, this subject of grace is very important because that is the beginning of our adventure with God. Grace is what makes sins out of sinners. It was grace that located Apostle Paul, who was the chief persecutor of the children of God, chief persecutor of the saints. He said, of all men, I am the worst of sinners. And yet, when the grace of God hit him, the worst of sinners became a great apostle among the Gentiles. That is what the grace of God can do. But unfortunately, a lot of believers think that grace only works in salvation. Grace is not just for salvation. Grace is is part of the believer's life from beginning to the end. When you take grace out, you don't have a life. Our life with God is essentially rooted on his grace. Everything good you can do, you can do it through the grace of God. That's what Apostle Paul said. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm not a saint just by the grace of God. Everything I have become after being saved, I am what I am by the grace of God. When the grace of God is properly understood, you live a life of victory. There are people who are saved by grace, but they feel that they must do the rest by themselves. God did not save you by grace to live by works. God saved you by grace, and you are kept by grace. You stand by grace. You serve him by grace. Everything we do in all our relationship with God, everything we do is a response to the grace of God. Somebody say an amen. amen. All right, so because grace is that important, we need to be able to appreciate how we can grow in the grace of God. So I'm going to be teaching on growing in grace. Growing in grace. Growing in grace. It's important that we grow in grace because grace is critical. Our lives begin with grace. Look at where we were. You and I, our state was that of a dead man. We were dead. We were lost in sin. We were candidate of hell. Then the grace of God, if you look at where we were reading, verse 5, it said, but God who is rich in mercy. Last Sunday, I was telling you that there are some buts that are good and there are some buts that are bad. One of the buts that is good is a but God. A but God moment is a very powerful moment. A brother was sharing his testimony with me this afternoon about how he was driving at 140 kilometers per hour and a front tire went off. You need a but God moment. <laughs> the Lord will preserve your life. But God, he told me the car stopped by itself. Listen, that is but God. He will watch over you. 
So we were all on a certain direction. That is the direction Apostle Paul. You see, most of the time, we are not able to appreciate the grace of God for what it is because we don't understand the magnitude that man or the depth to which man sank. Man sank so deep that God didn't just have to dig the surface. God had to go several feet down to the grave to bring man up. We were not sick that we needed healing. Where we could go to the hospital for health care or for healing. If we didn't have the faith for it, we were not sick. We were not poor that we needed some work to do to get money. We were not. But we were dead. A dead thing is something you can't do anything about. It's not profitable. And then, even if you want to keep it, very soon it will tell you that it's not meant to be kept. Am I communicating here? That was our state. We were dead, stinking dead. And then the grace of God came and changed our course. Having changed our course, is still able to change our course and keep us until the day of his return. And that's why we need to understand this subject of grace again and again. The Christian life begins with grace, it continues in grace, and then it ends in grace. So he says, by grace we are saved, and that not of ourselves. Now, from verse 8 to verse 9, he gives us a few things about grace that is worth appreciating. The grace of God has many attributes. It's here we are understanding that grace comes to us as a gift. Somebody say grace is a gift. So when we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about something that is gifted to you, something you could not earn. A merited favor, that is grace. Grace is a gift. And don't just take one leg of grace and run with it. You will soon fall down. You need to get all the other aspects of grace. So grace is a gift. Somebody say grace is a gift. She says, by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. If you don't know what grace is, grace is a gift. God gives us the gift of grace. And number two, grace is not of works. He says, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So, grace is not of works. Again, grace is not of you. Grace is not of works. Grace is not of you. Because there are times where we work, there are times we pay other people to work for us. So, you've still done it. But grace, when we talk about the grace of God, it is not of you. So, when the Bible says that you are saved, you cannot unsave yourself. What God gave you as a gift, you can't lose it. I'm not communicating here. Yeah, he gave it to you as a gift. Most of the time, when we begin to think about how we end, you see, our Christian experience has, is one of response to the grace of God. And you'll be able to live a meaningful life. You'll be able to live a strong Christian life where you understand that you are saved by grace and then on the basis of God's grace, you respond to God. Because outside grace, you can't really make any meaningful contact with God. There's nothing that can make you acceptable before God outside grace. So we are saved by grace and then we continue by grace. So grace is a gift. Somebody say grace is a gift. Grace is not of works. Grace is not of man. It is not of you. He said it is a gift of God, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So grace is not something you can boast about. You remember the gentleman who went before God? Well, let's look at Luke 18, the Pharisee. The problem Jesus had with the Pharisee was that the Pharisees always wanted something they could boast about. The religion always gives you something to boast about. But when you come into a relationship with God, because the relationship was not initiated by you, you literally have nothing to boast about. 
Our relationship with God was not initiated by us from the beginning to the end. If you understand the details of salvation, maybe we should do something from the book of Ephesians chapter 1 where we see where our salvation actually began. Ephesians chapter 1. It began in the mind of God. Look at that. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, let's go. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Four, just us. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When the salvation thing began with God, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. You don't choose Christ, he chose you. So when Jesus was telling his guys that you didn't choose me, I have chosen you. When Jesus came, the natural cause of discipleship is that disciples had the option of choosing their teacher. So if you wanted a rabbi to follow, you look for among them, the rabbis, the best of them. You can decide that I'm going to enroll in Gamali's institution. And I'm going to learn from him. That's what they were doing at the time. But when Jesus came, he changed the equation. Rather than being allowing his disciples to choose him, he chose his disciples. And he was doing what God had already set in motion before the foundations of the world. We did not choose God, he chose us. We respond to him because he chose us. He said, just as he, he's telling us, you see, Ephesians chapter 2, sometimes some theologians believe that Ephesians chapter 1 should have come before Ephesians chapter 2. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells you about how we are saved. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about what God did. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells us our state. And so, you see, in this proper, maybe he should have told us our state before and then what God did. That's how some theologians believe. But where it's situated is also very important because it helps us to know that this whole thing did not begin with us. Somebody gets saved and it's like, oh, pray for me that I'll be able to stay faithful to the end. No, that is not. He who has begun a good work in you, he's able to complete the work. Yes. Praise the Lord. So it's not, it's not like most of the time when people make those kind of things, they are thinking with the mind that now that I am saved and finished, the rest I have to find a way to keep it. But you don't keep what you didn't begin. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, he says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, he said, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9, he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Verse, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Verse 12, that we also, that's it, that we who first trusted 
in Christ should be to the praise of his glory by stating, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you see, he tells you about all that God did from the beginning. And he's telling you when you came in. The part you came in is when you place your trust and faith in Christ. When you responded, then the equation began to take place. So God started the process. And then we respond to the process. So we're saying that grace is a gift. Somebody say grace is a gift. Grace is not of works. Grace cannot be boast about. You can't boast about it. It cannot be boast about. You can't boast about the grace of God. Grace cannot be boast about. Now look at Luke chapter 18 there, where we wanted to read earlier. Luke 18. One man felt he had something to boast about. Two men went up to a temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a task what? Okay. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, even as this task collector. Now, you know why he was saying that? Because these were the things he was not doing. <laughs> so he wasn't an extortioner, he wasn't an unjust, he wasn't committing adultery. But I'm sure that there was some envy somewhere. There was some jealousy somewhere. Now, all of those things, and the Bible says, whosoever shall observe all the law and break one, he is 40 before the whole of the law. So, when he listed the things that he didn't do, he had forgotten that a million others he had already committed. So, he had no place to boast. That's why when the other person came and he stood there and he just appealed to the mercy of God, he made sense to God. Because you don't stand before God and brag about what you have done and what you didn't do. Because it doesn't really make sense. Whatever good you are able to do is because the spirit lives in you. Am I complicating here? Yeah. Before now, you were dead, so you couldn't do anything. And now that you have been made alive, you are able to do something also because his spirit is at work in you. The Bible says, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you were not able to do anything because you were dead. And now that you are saved, you are also able to do something because his spirit is at work in you. So literally, whether you are saved or you are not saved, you have nothing to boast about. Am I communicating here? So grace is a gift. Grace is not a worst. Grace cannot be boast. And grace empowers. Somebody say grace empowers. Grace empowers. Yeah, you have to understand that grace empowers. Grace empowers you to do what naturally is impossible to do. Grace empowers you to do what humanly is impossible to do. Grace is an empowering force. Look at what the Bible says. He said unto him, my grace is sufficient for you. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 9 to 10. My grace is what? Sufficient for you. Look at that. For my strength is made perfect in. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that there. What is it? That is the grace of God. That the power of God. The power he's talking about that is the grace of God. I will boast in my infirmity that the grace of God will rest upon me. So grace empowers. When you come before God and you are dealing with any challenge that you are struggling to deal with something you are struggling with, all you need to do is to tap in into grace. The grace of God can enable you to forgive. The grace of God empowers us to go beyond the natural to do that which is humanly impossible to do. And I like number five, grace teaches. Grace, that's what? 
Say grace teaches. Yeah, grace teaches. Grace teaches. Jesus didn't give the woman caught in adultery 30 reasons why you should not commit adultery again. When he demonstrated grace to the woman, he said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That grace, that was uncommon. She was at the point of death. People have stones in their hands and they were ready to stone her into death. And then Jesus gave her another chance at life. Grace gave her another chance at life. And when she received that, she decided, no, I, even if I want to do it, I can't do it. I was at the point of death. I was dead. I've been made alive. And now I can't continue to live like a dead man. I'm not communicating here. Now, that is how we respond to the grace of God. That's how the grace of God transforms people. That's why the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Because under condemnation, there is no way you can rise up to fulfill your full potential in Christ. But when you understand that even when you err, the grace of God is able to lift you up, you will come out of every challenge again and again. Can somebody say an amen? amen. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 to 14. He said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has what? Has appeared unto what? Then teaching us. Somebody say teaching us. us. Say teaching us. us. Unfortunately, when people get born again, we don't allow the grace of God to teach them. So when people get born again, we want them to transform overnight. But the grace of God teaches. The grace of God teaches. The grace of God teaches. The grace of God teaches you. That in the light of what Christ had done, you cannot continue to live your life like this. The grace of God teaches you. The grace of God. Because grace is something that you don't deserve. That's what Jesus expected the man who had been forgiven so much to do. But he didn't learn any lesson. He owned so much and then he looked at him and said, all your debts have been canceled. He went and met somebody. You see, what Jesus did was supposed to teach the man that that is how I'm out to deal with my brother. You see, if you meet somebody who cannot forgive, it's simply because he has not allowed the grace of God to teach him about God's forgiveness. You owe God so much and God forgave you. That in itself is the teaching. That is what? That's the teaching. That is instructing you that you can't continue to walk in that life. He said it teaches us to deny ungodliness. There are things grace teaches us not to do. There are people who think that once we talk about the grace of God, then we can just do anything. No, 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 no. There are things the grace of God teaches us not to do. And there are things the grace of God teaches us to do. All of that are in that text. There are things the grace of God instructs us to do. He teaches us to deny ungodliness. We can't live our lives as if God does not matter because he matters. Then he says, we deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Worldly lust, worldly affections. Setting our goals, setting our priorities on things that have no eternal value. Worldly lust. He says, all the things that are in the world, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are not of God. So we deny them. Grace of God makes you know that these are things that will not help you to fulfill your destiny. You have to let them go. Listen, genuine faith in Christ will always say no to some things. Genuine faith in Christ. Genuine faith in Christ says no. The faith that says yes to everything is not authentic. Authentic faith will always say no to some things. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23, the Bible said by faith, Moses when he was born was hid of his parents for three months. Hebrews 11 23 because they saw he was a proper child. Then he says by faith, Moses when he was come to years refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Can you see that? 
Moses refused. He said no. His faith in Christ made him say no. Your faith in God must make you say no to some things. A believer is the one who has said yes to God and no to the devil. You can't be a Christian and say yes to God and continuously be saying yes to uh, the devil. No. Yes to God means no to the devil. Yes to righteousness means no to any act of unrighteousness. Am I communicating here? The Bible said Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I like the saying that Dr. McMedock says quite often. That what you are willing to walk away from will determine what God will bring to you. Most of us want the best of God. But we don't know how to position ourselves to receive the best of God. I think last Sunday I was saying that I'll be teaching on how to handle the blessing of God. There's a way you position yourself. Many people have been blessed of God and they've not been able to handle the way they ought to handle it. And it looks like, now if you look at them before and now, it looks as if they were people who were never blessed. But God had so blessed them because they could not relate to the blessing appropriately. The Bible says, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then he made a different choice. Choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God. That was a choice. And everything Moses became was predicated on that choice. I'm not complicating somebody here. Listen, if you are going to live a distinguished life, you have to make choices. And those choices must be faith-based, faith-motivated choices. Not choices that will satisfy your immediate needs. There are some choices we make. Sometimes they can deny you something for a long time. But eventually, when those choices break through, people will see you and they will call you a lucky person. They don't know that over the years you'll be making quality spiritual choices. Am I communicating here? Moses refused. Genuine faith says no. Somebody say genuine faith. Says no. That's why it's not very difficult to tell. When the Bible says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith with my works. If you are a believer, it's not a rocket science to know you. There are things that will show that you are one. Because genuine faith will show. I mean, I was reading First Peter, I think yesterday or so. And he was talking about authentic faith. When faith is solid. When faith is genuine. What are the marks? And he was talking about whom you've, you've not seen yet to believe. You have joy unspeakable, full of glory. You are talking about all of those things. That's not what now. He says, choosing rather. Somebody say, choosing rather. Say, choosing rather. To suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Somebody say, choose affliction early. Turn to your neighbor and say, choose affliction early. Yeah, you have to learn to choose affliction. Choose it early. Some people choose their affliction too late. Learn to choose affliction early. Lamentation is a very interesting book. Lamentation, I think, 337 or so. He said, it is good that a man will bear his yoke in his youth. Choose affliction early. Because in order to become the person God has ordained you, affliction is a part. Say, affliction is a part. You can't stand in authentic gospel without affliction. It's a genuine part of it. The Bible says, through affliction, (laughs) we will enter into glory. Affliction is a part. Moses chose affliction, and he chose it over the pleasures of sin for a season. And then afterwards, we see him, Moses, become. All the things he left, later on, do you see that he got all of them back? And much more. He got all of them back. And ma- Listen, you don't choose God and lose. Turn to your neighbor and say, you don't choose God and lose. Turn to your person and say, you don't choose godliness to lose. The Bible says, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. He chose this. And at the end of the day, I mean, 
Moses had everything. He was an heir in waiting in Egypt, a prince in Egypt. But when he chose to drop it down, later on, all the wealth of Egypt, over which he was just an heir, they became his. You remember when he was leaving, all the wealth of the Egyptians were transferred to the Israelites. And who was the leader of the Israelites? Moses. And it began with a quality choice to say yes to God. All right, so I'm talking about the fact that grace teaches. Somebody say grace teaches. Say grace teaches. Grace teaches that we should deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and then grace teaches us that we should live soberly. Somebody say soberly. Say soberly. Righteously and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing in Christ. That's it. Luke verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness. So that's what we are not to do. Somebody say we are not to do. Say we are not to do. I realize that there is a certain grace message some people preach. And that message is like there is nothing you can do as a Christian. That is not good grace. And that is not biblical grace. Biblical grace will tell you what you should do and what you should not do. If you go through all the letters from Romans to the end, it is always in those two lines. What you are to do and what you are not to do. And it's all related to the gospel. The gospel, when it is fully received and properly understood, will keep you away from some things and release you into some things. So he talked about that. He said, teaching us that the non-ungodliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Verse 13, looking. Somebody say looking. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he says, who gave himself? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself? Especially his own special people, zealous for good works. Then he says, speak these things. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise them. So grace is a gift. Grace is not of works. Grace empowers. Grace cannot be boasted about. Grace grows. Somebody say grace grows. Say grace grows. Yeah, grace is an ever-growing virtue. The Bible said, be strong in the grace of God. Be strong, be strong in it. It means you can grow your capacity. Grace grows. Grace grows. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace. Somebody say, I grow in grace. Say, I'm growing in grace. Say, I'm growing in grace. Yeah, we have to grow in grace. We can grow in grace. We grow in grace. In the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Grace is an ever-growing virtue. You can increase in grace. You can become strong in grace. And we need to know how we can grow in grace. There are biblical keys that empowers us to grow in grace. And tonight, we are looking at one of such keys. By way of introduction, we are looking at growing in grace through humility. Somebody say, growing in grace. Through humility. All right. So you've seen the importance of grace. It is by which you were saved. It is by which you stand. It is by which you serve. It is by which you are sanctified. That is it. Everything you need to be, you can become it through grace. And you have to grow in grace. And there are ways to grow in grace. One of the ways we grow in grace is through humility. James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. 
but he giveth more grace. Can you see that? He giveth more grace. That's growth. That is increase. He giveth more grace, not little grace. May you receive more grace. Receive more grace in the mighty name of Jesus. He says, he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisted the proud, but he giveth more grace unto the humble. He says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 5. He says, likewise, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Let's read here together. Yes, all of you be submissive to one and be clothed with be clothed with. There's a cloth you should never. <laughs> you know, in the letters, there are a number of times where the Bible says, put on, put off, put on, put off. The garments. One of the garments we are to put on is humility. And the image that comes to my mind now is when Jesus laid aside his garment and put a towel on his waist. Praise the Lord. He put a certain garment on. There's a certain towel when you carry, you cannot go down and wash people's feet. There's a certain garment when you wear, you can't serve in church. There's a certain mindset when you have, you cannot mingle with certain people. That's John chapter 13. Rising from where? He did what? Laid aside his garment. Turn to your name and say, lay aside your garment. Yeah, because humility will always push you to lay something aside. If you meet people who are struggling to walk in humility, it's because they are not ready to lay something aside. See that their titles, their skill, or their profession, or where they stand, they are not ready to lay it aside. When Jesus had to come on earth as man, he laid aside his identity, his equality with God. The Bible says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, taught no robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself. So he changed his position, took something upon himself. By all means, he must have taken something off. When Jesus was taking on humanity, he had to first of all take off divinity. He could not come and walk amongst us. He could not come and function amongst us. As man, if he had come in his divinity. So he took away his divinity, placed on himself humanity. And as man, the Bible says he humbled himself. Jesus laid aside his garment and took a towel and gathered himself. Now, when Jesus was doing all of this, Peter was there. So when Peter says, clothe yourself with humility, he saw what Jesus did. This was the time where Peter was speaking to him and he said, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter said, no, you can't wash my feet. You are the Messiah. How will you wash my feet? Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter said, don't just wash my feet. Wash my whole body. Bath me from inside out. Oh, I love Peter. <laughs> He's a very, very interesting character. So when he says, be clothed with humility, he's talking about something. Ask your neighbor, what garment are you wearing? What garment? What garment are you wearing? Be clothed with humility. For God resisted the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself in words, in thoughts, words, and deeds. Somebody say humility. humility. It's an attitude of a heart that expresses itself in thoughts, words, and deeds. That's it. Humility is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself in these areas. When you are humble, it's in your heart. 
But when you are humble, it will affect your thinking. Somebody say, my thinking. Say, my thinking. Now, you see, people who are proud, they think high thoughts. They think thoughts that are higher than themselves. In fact, give me Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Keep it there. You should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That's what I'm saying, that humility is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself in our thinking. What you think about people. Your mindset. Why will you talk down on people? Why will you make people feel useless? Because you think people are useless. He says that don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But to think soberly. And the reason why you should think soberly is that God has given everybody something. Yeah, Whatever you have that is making you think like you are the holy. God has given everybody something that is different and unique from everyone. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Humility is an attitude of the heart. It expresses itself in our thinking and in our words. The Bible talks about proud words. Proud speaking in the book of Psalms. Say proud speaking. There are people who speak proud things. And then of course, so obviously, what you think uh, will always manifest itself in your behavior. We must be clothed with humility. Somebody say, I must be clothed with humility. Now, there are marks of authentic humility. Humility can be authentic or fake. When it has to do with authentic humility, there are marks of it. One of the marks of authentic humility is prayer. Somebody say prayer. prayer. <laughs> say prayer. prayer. Uh-huh. Ask your neighbor, do you like to pray? <laughs> authentic humility. One of the marks of, of authentic humility is prayer. If you don't like prayer, you are proud. <laughs> Yeah. If you don't pray a lot, we are very arrogant. Your pride is very big. The more you pray, the most likely that you are humble. Because prayer is simply asking God for help. And if you are proud, you don't need anybody's help. Just like I was telling you, somebody was doing proud speaking. <laughs> I don't need you for anything. That's what you say. Look at what the Bible says. First Peter 5, verse 5 to 7. He said, likewise, you all submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with what? Humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. He said, therefore, humble yourself therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Casting all your care. That's how you humble yourself. And that is not that you are looking humble. You cast all your cares. That's how you humble yourself. By casting all your care. Any care you are carrying is a sign that you are arrogant. He says, any care you are carrying, whether it's over your children, your finances, your marriage, listen, it's a sign that you are arrogant. He didn't say, share your care with me. He said, casting all your cares upon him. Knowing, for he cares for you. And when you read the book of Psalms, the Bible says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. As for me, I will call upon the Lord. Casting our burden. He says, casting all your cares. In what way do we cast our burden? One platform through which we cast our burden is through prayer. As for me, I will call upon the Lord. And the Lord will sustain me. And the Lord will save me. Even in the morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. And he shall hear my voice. Cast thy burden on him. He shall sustain you. 
Why are you carrying it? Verse 22, good. The same text, verse 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. Good. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He shall what? He shall what? The reason why you are not sustained is that you are carrying the thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, cast it. Cast it. Some of you have started carrying the burden of 2023. (laughs) You have not finished 2022. You are preparing yourself. You are visiting the gym to prepare, wait, to carry the burden for 2023. Cast all thy burden upon the Lord. That's what we'll be doing in January. We'll cast all our burden. Praise the Lord. That's, that's what we do. When we pray, you see, when you pray, God works. When you decide not to pray, he relaxes. Because I bet upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. A humble person is a very prayerful person. If you meet somebody who is praying sincere prayers, he's a mark of humility. In the Old Testament, one of the things the Bible used to say about prayer, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves or what? The first thing you do before you pray is humility. The act of praying is an act of humility. When you are not praying, you are proud. When we call for prayer meeting, you don't come, you are proud. When we are fasting, you are not fasting, you are proud. Am I communicating here? I didn't say it. It's the Bible who said it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So the reason why you are not praying is that you have not humbled yourself. You have not humbled yourself to admit all the things you can do. All the things you have no control about. All the things you can't control. When you humble yourself and you come to a place, you know that I can't control tomorrow. I can't control my future. I can't control my children. All of these things, then you commit them into the hands of God. That's where prayer starts. So prayer really starts from our heart. Our heart disposition with God is what begins prayer. In the book of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 1, he said the preparations of the heart is a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That's why the gentleman went home justified. When he came to God, he came to express his humility. He said, he lifted up his eyes, said, have mercy on me because I am helpless. God said, that man went justified. When you pray, you demonstrate humility in a number of ways. One, in prayer, you acknowledge God's existence because proud people don't see God. They don't think he exists. Who is God? Even if he exists, I don't care about him. He doesn't care about me. That's all. Proud people. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. You know, there are people who speak louder without speaking anything, with their actions. <laughs> One of them is in the book of Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked do not care about the Lord. He doesn't care about him. <laughs> the wicked do not care about the Lord. In their pride, they think that God doesn't matter. God doesn't what? <laughs> God doesn't what? Yeah. May you not think God does not matter. <laughs> because if God does not matter, your life will also not matter. Turn to your neighbor and say, God really matters. Yeah. If God does not matter, your life will be gone. When pride sets in, people think God does not matter. When our expertise matter, when our skill matter, but God does not matter, we can't go far in life. May the Lord give us understanding. May the Lord help you. Number two, a lifestyle of prayer acknowledges your daily need of God. Somebody say, I need God. I need God. How many of you believe that you need God every day? I need God every day. You need God every day. We need him every day. When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, one of the things he made clear is that give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say, give me this year my yearly bread. 
He wanted you to acknowledge your need for God daily. That's why God does not give you your weekly or monthly bread. He gives you your daily bread. You have to go to him every day. It's about the relationship. It's a relationship he wants to have with you. Your lifestyle of prayer reveals your priorities in life. It reveals your priorities in life. A lifestyle of prayer demonstrates your faith and confidence in God's ability to deal with the challenges you can deal with. A lifestyle of prayer acknowledges the supremacy of God's will and way above your own. A lifestyle of prayer. Somebody say a lifestyle of prayer. Acknowledges the supremacy of God's will. Above my way and my will. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As uh, he said, for your ways are not my ways, neither are my thoughts like your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on all your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. And so when we pray, we grow in humility. Amen? One authentic mark of humility is a lifestyle of what? A lifestyle of what? Are you going to be praying? Receive grace to be prayerful. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Lift up your hands and begin to thank God. If you want to accept Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior, you want to say this prayer after me. Mean every word and then believe it in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess that you are my Lord and my Savior. I believe with my heart that you died and rose again for me. By my belief, I am justified. And by my confession, I am saved. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. If you pray that prayer in faith, you are a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God bless you. We look forward to having you join us again and again. We are blessed. Pastor Afuakwa has just placed in your hands the key for all-round victory, success, and limitless prosperity. Share your testimonies with us on 020-422-5790 or email us at embassyoflifechapel at gmail.com. Get interactive with Pastor Afuakwa on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For more information, visit our website at www.embassyoflife.org. Fellowship with us this and every Sunday for our service at our headquarter church from 8.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. for our good news service. And on Wednesdays for our discovery service from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Our church auditorium is located on the top floor of Nanama Ejakuma Plaza opposite the Unity Oil Station, Santata Runabout, Kumasi, Ghana. Alternatively, you can join us online for our services on Embassy of Life Chapel, Facebook or YouTube pages. God richly bless you. Oh, no.